Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Well, good morning. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to draw your attention to the insert or uh, maybe perhaps it was handed to you and not in the bulletin. But this is a Reformation, Reformation Sunday and we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so I want you to um, read it, if you will, not while I'm preaching, please, but um, maybe quickly before or after, because this is very this is a very important part of our history, our spiritual history of who we are as a people. And we need to understand history because at this point, the gospel was at stake. The very gospel of Holy Scripture was at stake. And we want to learn about that and know about that because it's not the only time the gospel may be at stake. Uh, there are constantly false teachings and aberrations of Scripture wanting to make um, what the gospel says different from how God preached it. And Martin Luther, the little known monk that the article talks about, was just an instrument used by God to awaken the church to that day. But the, the main issue comes down to the heart of the gospel. And there was a lot of other things, indulgences and so forth, that it talks about in the sacraments and praying to the saints. But the main issue was, how are we justified? And the reformers said, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. The teaching of that day was that, Yes, you are justified by Christ and you need faith. That's the root and the foundation. And Christ offers us the majority of merit for our salvation. But we have to add to it. We have to kind of help him out. And so it was a works righteousness salvation. And I thank God that we were brought and men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the others that they God used them to rally the mass, the people back to Holy Scripture. And by the way, that tension there in understanding the gospel is still there today. You still have the Roman Catholic Church and you still have Protestantism. Um, the doctrine has not changed uh, as far as the root of the gospel goes. So make yourself aware of that and we can be celebrating that we have in our hands the true gospel and the true understanding of that. Our righteousness by Christ through faith alone. We are in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus really is talking about righteousness, but not justification or imputed righteousness. He's talking about practicing righteousness. And he is drawing attention to three particular ways that disciples practice their righteousness. He's been talking about giving. He's been talking about, as we will look at this morning, praying, and then later on, fasting. And at this particular point in Matthew chapter 6, he is teaching his disciples how to pray. And in teaching them how to pray, he first teaches them how not to pray. And so he uses... The hypocrites, a group of people that he calls the hypocrites, as an example of how not to pray. Because they spend more time trying to be, to pretend they're righteous, as opposed to actually striving to be righteous. Because their motive for the righteousness is strictly for the praise of man, not for the glory of God. Don't make your prayer or your righteousness about yourself. It should always point to God. 
And then the other way not to pray, of course, was the example of the pagans and how they prayed. And they prayed loudly and repetitiously and really desperately because they just had no assurance and confidence that the gods up there, as many as they believed in, were even hearing them or even cared about their lives at all. And so they had to kind of throw a little fit down here, hoping to catch the attention of one of the divines to get some help. And Jesus is teaching us that's not how prayer works. The God of heaven is nothing like the pagans think he is. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. That's how much he cares. And that's how all knowing he is. And then he begins to direct us. Well, then how do we practice righteousness? And it's it's more of a secret thing. It's more of a private thing. It's a devotional thing before you and God. The motivation always stays relational and personable, quiet. It's not a show. It's it's a real life um, lived out in adoration and love by the people of God. We looked at this prayer Uh, took kind of an overview, a mountain view of the prayer last time and saw that two important things stand out. One is that it's intended to be a model prayer or a teaching prayer. And it is helpful to memorize it word for word by all means. Um, But the idea is that our prayers should look something like this. Now, we can do freestyle and just pray however we, we feel so inclined, but that doesn't mean that we're actually praying as God intends for us or in a way that blesses him, because in this teaching prayer, we actually find the the ingredients since it's a teaching from heaven. This is what God has on his mind when it comes to our conversations with him. And so it's a teaching prayer, but it's also a family prayer. We saw because um, of all the plurals in there. And that's something we're not used to always thinking about other people because we have a tendency to think about ourselves and only pray for ourselves. This is a family prayer. It's a togetherness prayer. And Rabbi Zacharias reminded us in his little poem, in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it, it never once says me. The idea is that not only do I need sustenance and provision, but you need it as well. Not only do I need forgiveness from God, you need it as well and deliverance from evil and to be kingdom minded. We all need that. So we pray that for ourselves. We also pray it for our brothers and sisters, the the team, if you will, the remnant that God has. This morning, we're going to look at verses nine and ten and concentrate on basically the fatherhood of God. So let's read this. And I'm reading from the ESV. Verses 9 through 15. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We find first here, we're going to look at how Jesus teaches us how to address God, the title. Then we'll look at his his dwelling 
and His holiness that are found just in these first two verses. But Jesus begins the prayer by addressing God as Father. And if you think of all the different ways God even addresses Himself in Scripture, this is unique that Jesus would choose this particular characteristic or title that God has. He appeals to the fatherhood attribute of God. In our uh, our post-Christian culture, many today don't have a good perception of fatherhood. And that might be a stumbling block for some to think, to try to perceive a relationship with God in the terms of fatherhood. Uh, We hear terrible stories of abusive fathers or um, absent fathers, um, deadbeat fathers. And many people, unfortunately, carry a lot of anger and disappointment in their hearts in relation to their earthly experience with their earthly father and the failures that come in that. And uh, we recognize that there are true um, negative perceptions of fatherhood. But baggage or no baggage, this is the title that is ascribed to God. This is how God himself wants to be addressed by his children. And he will not change or he will not bow to our cultural preferences and wishy-washiness. God's not like a a politician that needs our vote and needs to conform to the culture in order to get certain affirmation from us. He is what he is. He's being perfectly true and genuine to his being. And this is how uh, how he addresses us and how he wants us to address him. He feels no shame in this. Now, this does not mean that he is a man as we think of our earthly manhood. Jesus was fully man, like we are men, and fully God. But God is spirit, not flesh. So he's not gendered as we would be. So we have to be careful how far we take this idea of masculinity and not put God in the flesh, God the Father in the flesh, as The Mormon faith does. But God chose to reveal himself as the father figure, not not a neutral gender. Uh, We do not pray to God as a goddess half the time and as a God, the other half by his choice. Um, He teaches this and it is by God that male and female get their characteristics and their uniqueness because both are created in the image of God. Now, we might get up, get hung up on this again because of the bad rap that fathers have. So that's what maybe what our cultural hang up would be. But in Jesus's day, that would not be the cultural hang up in addressing God as father. In Jesus's day, the cultural hang up would be um, from a Jewish mindset that that is absolutely uncalled for and unnecessary and disrespectful to address this transcendent God in such personable language or terms because they had such a deep respect for God they wouldn't even write his name in full so there there was this tremendous honor and respect for it to the point where uh, God was almost unapproachable and and you don't speak to him on personable terms and so this would be 
looked at as dis, uh, a dishonorable thing to do with God. And all in the New Testament, I'm not aware of a single time where God is addressed as Father in all the prayers in the Old Testament. Around the times of Jesus, there are a few historical documents where God is addressed as Father. But really, this is unique to Jesus. Jesus is the one that made this kind of praying and addressing our Holy Father uh, popular. Now, we, we don't even think twice about it. But this is rather new, relatively new, in the way Jesus addressed him. And Jesus addresses God as Father no less than 60 times in the Gospels. He's constantly talking to his Heavenly Father. Um, verses like, um, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke twenty three, forty six, And the word used for Father is the Aramaic word uh, Abba, which I think is, is special because in our culture, um, our first words may be Mama. We hope it's Dada or Daddy. But most of the times, unfortunately, well... Well, most times it's, it's, it's mama, but there's always that little competition. But then we graduate. We, we, when we're in our, in our teens, we're not still saying dada. It graduates to dad or father or pop or whatever. But in that language, Abba, is, it just grows with you and you continue to use it. It's just the endearing term for father. Um, Jesus says again in Mark 14:36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but what you will. So Jesus regularly addressed God in a way that uh, none else would dare really in that day and age. <clears throat> and I think perhaps what's even more remarkable is the fact that this is just not a special term for the only begotten Son to address His Father. But Scripture teaches us and welcomes us as adopted children into the family of God to also address Him as Father. We are encouraged to, to um, approach God with this mindset. As Romans 8.15 says, the Apostle Paul, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture of, of warmth and safety and, and inclusiveness. And a popular thing to do today, of course, is to say that all of mankind... Are God's children. Or put another way. God is the father of all. It's a very popular thing. Politicians say it. Different religious leaders say it. And the idea is to try to bring unity out of diversity. And it's a true statement. As long as we understand it. In the sense that we can trace our humanity. Back to the one man and woman. Adam and Eve. Who were created by God. In that sense, by creation, God is all of mankind's father, but not by salvation. And it's a, an important distinction that our culture doesn't always make. And there's this assumption, well, if God is the father of all, then we must all be his children in a salvific way. And that's not the case. In John 8, Jesus even says to some of the 
people of God that you're um, the child of your father, the devil. And he says that because they were acting more like they were created in the image of the devil than they were in the image of God. So in a creation sense, yes, but in a salvation sense, it is only those that have placed their faith in Christ that are adopted into the kingdom of God. Galatians 4, 6, the apostle also says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Isn't it interesting that when the apostle Paul introduces this, it's crying, Abba, Father. It's almost like you sense this release or a relief of, I found my true father. I'm home. In that sense. And we, we get to be there. In the presence of God as his true children. So we address God as father. And there is somewhat of a metaphor, if you will, uh, drawing from earthly fatherhood. And a good question to ask is, OK, if this is the picture God has given us, what do we take And what do we leave behind as far as relating to our spiritual father somewhat in terms of our earthly father? What do we take and what do we leave behind? Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us out in question 100 on this. And it says, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer is, the preface teaches us to draw near to God in a holy, reverent confidence... As a children to a father, able and ready to help us. So there's these this two ingredients that we can take in our perception of a relationship when we're in communication. And that is there, there needs to, to be maintained this, this reverence, this great respect. Because God is still God. And holy and perfect. But there's also... We are also to address him with this warm confidence that he is our father. So there's there's some expectations there um, and tremendous benefits by the fact that he is our father. So that's kind of the balance that we want to keep. We, we don't want it to be so formal. It's kind of like the, the military manner and every button has to be fastened and our shoes have to be shined or we can't come before our father. It's not to be too formal, but it's not to be to informal, where we just disrespect God or dishonor Him in any way and bring Him down to our terms. I also want to just say that because we do live in such a broken culture, uh, by our own doing, and families are broken, and there is a lot of hurt that people suffer from from broken families, um, I, I want to encourage us to not Judge our heavenly father by what our earthly fathers did or didn't do. But to always judge our earthly fathers based on the standard that our heavenly father sets. He, he, that's where the healing comes in the brokenness. He set the standard of what it means to care for children. To be attentive, to be, to be true, to be protective, to be good. He is the standard. We don't want to drag him down and muddy God up with bad earthly examples. We always want to be lifting fatherhood up to 
the heavenly model of God. So we don't want to group him in with the deadbeat dads. That's not going to solve a single thing. It brings absolutely no healing for us to have a bad perception of who God is. Healing comes through the proper perception and truth of who God really is. Is And so, since he is all the example, always the example, we really have no excuse to just continue to butcher the, the uh, state of fatherhood that God has given us as a gift. Because we have him as a standard. We don't have to keep looking at one another and stay in brokenness. He's the epitome of fatherhood. And he says in the Psalms, a sweeping remark, I am the father to the fatherless. Now that has gone out, he says, of course, to his chosen people, but to all of humanity. I am the father of the fatherless. Now, who can say that but God? That means that he desires for all to turn to him with that fatherly relationship. Even those that did did not even have a father. I'm here for you. And there's a sense, and it's not the same in any sense, but even those without an earthly father, God can say, you can still experience in a spiritual way the benefits of good fatherhood by coming to me as your heavenly father. I'll also say that there's no escaping um, the fact that We as dads uh, do fail quite frequently. And there's no escaping the fact that God has used this picture, given us this picture of God as Father, which means the better or the more biblical our fatherhood is to our children, the, the easier this transition is of them understanding their Heavenly Father and the fatherhood that He offers. And we can make it really difficult for our kids when they hear... In Sunday school or at church that God is also to be addressed as a heavenly father. What will come to their minds? Will it serve as a stumbling block or will it serve as this beautiful transition of, well, I get it. I immediately understand this. That means God loves me because my my father loves me. It means he, he listens to me. It means he comforts me when I'm hurt. It means he's the one I go to when I need to be saved or protected from things that are more powerful than I am. He's the one that wants me to grow up and he wants to bring goodness into my life and be my provider. He's the one that wants to rejoice in my accomplishments as I mature through life. And that's what we want our children to think about with this kind of prayer. So there's this deep, deep respect, but there's also this this warm, kind confidence in approaching our father. You know, when I was a, um, when I was a kid, I didn't shop throughout the neighborhood to find out who's going to buy me new clothes for the new school year or who's going to buy me soccer cleats when soccer season starts. I knew where the things that I needed in life came from or where am I going to get my next meal? Um, Dad in our house was the authority. And he was the provider. He was the final word. And he, he had wisdom to put all of these things together and to use them. And so I would, um, in, in the big things, I would have to go to Dad. 
and ask dad for things. And you know, he was the one that just taught me the basic needs of life and skills of life. And taught me how to ride a, drive a lawnmower. Um, took a little while. I dulled some blades and dented a few things. But it was dad that taught me those kind of things. It was dad that I had to go to for permission. I had to ask. I had to petition. You know, dad, can I have a dirt bike? All my friends have a dirt bike and it's really fun. And, and like Jonah, I'm just going to die if I don't get this dirt bike. And, you know, dad, I had to get permission from him. And he said, no, it's too dangerous. And after lots of work, petitioning, and I uh, finally found what it took to get my dirt bike. How about if I pay for all of it? If you pay for all of it, he reluctantly said, okay, you can have a dirt bike. I don't think he thought I was actually going to be able to work consistently enough to make the money I needed. But I did. And lived to tell about it. But God, I mean, Dad, he was the authority. You think about that. And he had wisdom. And he was the one that I needed to go to for permission for things. And he played that role. And, uh, you know, Dad did a, for an earthly father, he's 91 to this very day, did a tremendous job in fatherhood. Uh, He had nine children and I was the only reject out of nine. That's pretty good (laughs) statistics there. But, um, you know, and the other thing is, it's not only as we look to our parents, but as a father and as a mother, when you think about parenthood, there's something absolutely unique and special about it. So just and, and God wants to be viewed, but he also enjoys us as children. He enjoys it. So if we theoretically did an experiment and um we, I'm trying to see some, uh, real, who's the youngest child in here this morning? Not Riley. Is it Chantry maybe? If we just did a little experiment, we all got in a circle and we, we took a, a toddler, Mason, maybe he's uh, is Mason in the nursery, Mason or Noah. We put them in the middle and we're all around and we're, we're smiling. We want to be the special ones. To, to come to me, you know, hello, Noah, or hello, Mason, come to me, come to me, because we want to be that unique person that they love. And unless we cheat and have like some lollipops or candy, more than likely they're going to look around and they're looking for that familiar face of mom and dad. And they're going to go to mom and dad. And you know how special mom and dad are going to feel when they come to only them. God, God enjoys that. When we come to only him for the things that he has set himself up to play a certain role in our lives. He has made promises of commitment to us. And he loves when we come to him uniquely and specially and warmly and look and even depend on him for those things. Even um, yesterday at Hunter's birthday party, as all some of the families came with their little kids, it was neat for me to watch because... The little kids are all excited. They get there and they're looking around. They see the games. They see their friends and they just quickly take off from mom and dad. No longer holding hands. I see something better. But it's not long before I see little kids walking around with pouty faces. Why? Because they ran a little bit too far away from mom and dad and now I can't find them anymore. But you lift them up and as soon as they see them again, the world is just right again. 
Because there's mom and dad for me. God is an incredible caregiver and he takes delight in caring for us in that way. So, you know, part of praying is, is talking to dad. It's, it's working life out with dad, our authority. We need permission to do certain things. What does dad have to say about it? And provisions and counting on dad's wisdom. And I got to say, to be honest with you, I don't think literally that the world has been the same since this prayer. I don't think the world has been the same since Jesus taught us to pray to God like this. The title. And then we have in this prayer, just briefly, the Father's dwelling. We'll talk more about that later. But he's not just our Father, but he is our Father who are in heaven. And that's important that... Jesus wants us to acknowledge where God resides, where he reigns and rules. And the idea here is that always remember that our God is high up. He's not just God. He is the most high God. He is in the the highest place in the heavenlies. And what he does there is rule and reign absolutely, sovereignly and kingly. That's what our father does. He He imposes at times and he proposes his will from heaven to this earth because he has dominion over all things. He's absolutely exalted in his position. So as we pray, we don't ever want to forget how high up he is. Ecclesiastes 5.2 reminds us of this. He says, be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's just another way of reminding us not to get too chummy. Keep that respect there. Keep that honor there. And God is honorable. Now, we do our, our children absolutely no favors if we allow them to disrespect us. When God gives parents positions of honor and respect, and some of it is given by God and the rest of it has to be earned. But there's a position of respect there to be upheld. God is worthy of our respect at all times. And in light of this, since he has all power, it just makes sense that he would be the one that we would go to. When we have needs that we cannot fulfill on our own. He hasn't given us that power. So we go to the God who has the power. And then lastly, the Father's holiness. We're taught to pray, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. As a regular practice of our prayers to be mindful that he is Approachable, but he's holy. Psalm 111, holy and awesome is his name. That holy character always needs to be kept in mind so that we don't get too casual in how we approach him. So he's, he's, he is dad, but he's dad with a standard of perfection. That standard is how we come to him. I like, um, <clears throat> take it for, for what it's worth, but I have always 
<clears throat> appreciated C.S. Lewis's way that he wrestled with how approachable is God. Because he is so fierce and holy. And he is a God of wrath and vengeance. But yet, he, he's also loving. And how do you reconcile that? And I think he did a pretty good job in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is a, a Christ-like figure. Aslan the lion. You'll be familiar with this. <clears throat> but, um, ooh, Susan says, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I just love the balance where you have the goodness, but without compromising the holiness, the, the purity. And I understand that the, the holiness can be rather unsettling and, and even dangerous, but we need a holy God. We need a holy God. We need a, a pure and perfect God. We don't want a flawed God. We don't want a capricious God, a God that may or may not hear, may or may not know, may or may not be able to help. There, there's enough of flawedness among us and even with other religions. God holds the title of unflawed father. That means that we're always going to get truth. We're always going to get what's good. There, there are no hidden motives with God. There's no manipulations with God. It's always pure and just, and it is what is genuine, and it is what is, brings him the most glory and what blesses us the most. Because the more we bring him glory, the more blessed we are as a people. That's what we need to elevate ourselves in that. And it's, it's holiness without compromising the love, without compromising the compassion. They don't compete against each other. It's not to be removed. It's just an intimate relationship that's based on purity. It's, it's personable. You might say, I don't, you know, I've never seen that person. I don't know that person. But if you say, I know that person personably or personally, it means you know them well enough to know some of their personality. There, there's some predictability there. That's how well you know them. God has a personality as a being. And this is part of it. And we need to know this aspect of our Heavenly Father. He is pure. He is holy. I like what he said in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Same word for set apart or holy. I will be. Even those that are near me. He's talking to his people that are worshiping him. Before all people, I will be glorified. And there are some... Fortunately, not many, but there are examples in Scripture where God just said, enough is enough. You're not going to dishonor me like that. You had Aaron's sons who offered strange fire and felt the burn for it, so to speak. Uh, you have, um, I think it was Uzzah that, or Uzzah who reached out to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And you, you just don't, the message, you just don't, just don't dishonor me. 
There, there is that unsettling part of it there. God is going to be respected and honored. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be hallowed? Well, basically, the biblical definition is just set apart. God is set apart. And of course, when we come to faith, he sets us apart. The whole Old Testament worship system was God taking things and setting them apart. This this bowl is for me. You're going to create this curtain. It's set apart. This is set apart. So all these things that are set apart are only for the worship of me because I am a set apart God. And God sets us apart through Christ. It's all about holiness, holiness, holiness. There is no one holy like the Lord, 1 Samuel 2, 2. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is our holy God high. The sum total of holiness is our heavenly Father. So this is what Jesus is asking us to pray. It's a petition. Holy be your name, Father. When's the last time you spoke to your Heavenly Father in those terms? I want your name to be holy. That's what we're asking when we pray this. I want you to manifest yourself as the holy God that you are in this world. Manifest yourself as the holy God that you are in my life. I want your name to be hallowed. Live up to it. Live up to your perfect reputation. Make yourself known as who you really are. But we're also... Asking that God be seen as holy by others. That others would recognize God's holiness. Not just that he would be holy. But that others would recognize it. That we would recognize it. That we would consider that. And account for that. Treat him as holy. Philip Ryken says God's name is hallowed when human beings declare that he is holy and give him the honor he deserves. So there's a sense when we pray this prayer, we're also saying, God, help me hallow your name. Help me live a life and think about you, treat you as the God you really are. So to pray this and then not to live a holy life is to not answer our own prayer. Slowing down a little bit and <clears throat> kind of nearing the end here, I want to... Help this sink in as we think about approaching God in these terms. And read a story by uh, Spiros Zodiades about, in his book about the Lord's Prayer. Just to kind of wrap things up. The story is told of a wise and benevolent king who was loved and honored by all his subjects. And one morning, each week, he opened his throne room to the general public. And on that morning, he would hear grievances and listen to petitions, making himself available to meet the needs of his people. There was one man who faithfully came to see the king week after week. He never bothered the king with a single complaint or request. He simply stood at the back of the throne room. And after a while, this began to puzzle the king. Who was this man who came every week and why did he come if not to ask for help? So one day the king summoned the man to approach his throne and he acquired after his business. Your majesty, the man said, when I was a young man, I committed a crime and I was sentenced to death. 
Yet as I was dragged through the streets to the gallows, I saw you riding on your horse and cried out for mercy. Since I was such a young man, you granted me a royal pardon and commanded me to be released. That is why I come to stand in your presence every week. I do not come to ask for anything. What more could I ask for? You have already given me my life and my freedom. I come only to pay you homage, to honor you as your devoted servant. I just think some of what is missing when we don't immerse our heads in Scripture and instead immerse them in culture. It's just being in the presence of God without even asking him for a single thing based on the pardon that he has already given us. Is that not enough to make him so worthy of adoration and love and devotion? Whether or not I get that dirt bike. But just for who he is and what he has already done. Our hearts are brimming over with gratitude and praise to our Heavenly Father. Christ has given us the freedom. He's given us the righteousness. He's opened the door and made God approachable to us. I like what Philip Ryken says. Once it was God's holiness that separated us from God. The holiness of His being. Now it is God's holiness that brings us to God. The holiness of the perfect sacrifice Jesus offered for our sins on the cross. Let us hallow the name of our Heavenly Father. So as we close, we just want to think to ourselves and, and conversate with God, the Holy Spirit. Are the choices that we're making in our lives hallowing the name of God? Are the way our thoughts... And our actions, is it showing the world how incredible, holy, and worthy God is as we live before His face? Are we bringing Him glory? Where do we need to be separated from evil and defilement? Where do we need to conform to God? May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.